Hi, we're the Moans from Sacramento, California, and you're listening to The Illustrious Gentleman. You can check out our stuff at themoans.bandcamp.com. Welcome to another episode of The Illustrious Gentleman, the place where comic book artists and top blokes Scott Godleski and Ryan Cody talk about life, work, comics, and booze. Follow the show on Twitter at TIG underscore show and online at www.tigshow.com. T-I-G-S-H-O-W dot com. Don't forget to let us know what you're drinking while you're listening to the show. Go on yourself, big man. So yeah, you're going to get uh, one side of me lit, apparently. I'm leaning of... as far away from the mic as I can while I eat. I hope it doesn't register. Um, this is a classy show. Yeah, well, we have uh, we kind of kind of started yet. Speaking of classy, I made a... I brought... Because I want to pre-drink, because I'm a pro, so I want to pre-drink. Um, so I... First of all, I'm, I want you to know I mounted this camera just for you and yeah, our guests. Just for you you're and our very guests. very close. Well, it's because the camera is literally inches away from my mic because i'm in my box i'm in my sound box mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so right now you're in my box you're in my space yeah you're all up in my box um <laughs> so my pre-drink today because i only brought one beer my pre-drink is gin and tonic so i had to make a gin and tonic using a flathead screwdriver because i didn't have a knife and as soon as i made it it took a while to cut into this lemon or this lime it was it was why dash- didn't you just make a screwdriver I don't have orange. I'm not at my house. I don't have orange juice and shit here. I have a lime and I have tonic. You would have used a knife to make that. Well, I got to cut up my lime for my gin and tonic. I don't have a knife, and I don't have a ra- I don't have a box cutter. Whoa, whoa, wait. So okay, use let's... a screwdriver to make what? Yeah. Okay. So um, oh, I see where the confusion's coming from. So I have a lime. I have a bottle of gin, and I have tonic. Oh, and I have you tonic. Cut a lime with a screwdriver. What does the lime look like? Why didn't you just use your fingers? Or I, I don't have I don't have fingernails. I bite my nails. Anyways, the point is, I spent minutes, minutes, maybe up to five, butchering this lime. I made the drink, and then I was stupid, and I wanted to make a sign for the Instagram for the fucking show for the episode to take a picture. So while I'm doing all this shit, I end up spilling my gin and tonic that I just spent five minutes making. Yeah, all, you smell like alcohol? Well, luckily, it smells more like lime, but I used a floor sweater to mop it all up, so it's not that big of a problem. <laughs> so, But then I had to make another one, so I'm finishing, you know, <laughs> you can eat. It doesn't matter. What's on your sandwich? Is it egg salad or is it I keep meat? taking a bite and then leaning back towards the microphone. Is it, a, is it a meat sandwich or is it an egg salad sandwich? No, it's just a meat sandwich. Ooh. Turkey or ham? Uh, both plus salami. Oh my god, you're making it like an Italian special from Subway. Banana peppers. Do you have a dressing on there? Just mayo. Oh my god, you should have mustard, <laughs> mustard and Italian dressing is what you should have on there. You know, I do have dramatic lighting, so I am, I do like the way I look. I pulled out a, I pulled out like a six-year-old webcam camera, and I mounted it and downloaded the drivers and everything. I'm no longer on the laptop. I am recording on the desktop. 
it's impressive, impressive shit. It's like going back in time. Yeah, but everything's better. Look how good I look. Are you fucking kidding me, man? I can see less shit. of you. So yes, it's good. Yeah. Uh, so, um, not that you're gonna listen to this episode ever, but for those of those of us who did listen to the intro to the episode, I hope you'll notice the all new intro song that started this week's show. So earlier this week, uh, I bullied Scott and I basically said I wanted to find a a way to better abuse the friends that we have. And I also want to have the music on the show be more personal. So uh, with that said, uh, uh, I want to thank my friend Gray Watson and Jason Sander. Uh, They're part of the band, the killer drones, and they're doing our new intro music. Um, So you had just heard it. Uh, Gray played at my wedding. So uh, Scott, you were at my wedding. He played guitar when my, when my bride walked down the, he played uh, California stars by Wilco when my, when my bride walked down the aisle. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then our, we have a new outro song too. So we're, we're doubling down. The new outro song is by the moans fronted by comic creator and, and friend of the show and friend of ours, personal friend of ours, uh, Matt Bennett. So, um, if you go to Benton, Scott knows Matt more than I do, but yeah, say something nice about Matt. Um, he's tall. (laughs) Yeah. Really tall. Is he? I've only met him in person once. I didn't. I didn't recognize his height. So <laughs> I would have thought you would recognize everybody's height. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, so go to Bandcamp, search Gray Watson, search the Killer Drones, and also search uh, the Moans and buy all their shit because uh, I'm gonna put all their links up on the website. And uh, I'm glad that we can now have intro music that has a personal attachment. If that. Yeah, makes I should have worn my shirt. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. You have a Moan shirt. I don't have a Moan shirt. Are you wearing a Punisher shirt or a Moon Knight shirt? What shirt is no, that? No, it's Darth Vader. Oh, my God. All I see are your pecs. So it just looks like... I don't want to tell you what it looks like. Oh, there we go. Okay. So I guess uh, our last announcement before we get into tonight's show, it, today's show, doesn't really matter. Whenever you listen to it, the show, uh, there's only about two... When this comes out, there'll only be about two days left on the Kickstarter. I'm honestly totally happy with no one else backing it because I have to mail less shit. Um, that, that said, that said, if you want, I got to make these shirts, right? I got to, I got to pay to get these shirts made that are only Kickstarter exclusive. There is a minimum to those shirts. So I need a couple more people to buy at the shirt level. Otherwise I'm just going to be using them for like sheets and shit. How much is the shirt level? Uh, I think it's 20 or 25, but then you back the show and you get the shirt. I think it's 20 plus five shipping. So it's 25 total, 25 total. Um, and you'll be one of like 15 to 20 people on the planet who own this t-shirt. So you can brag about oh, that nice. when you're out in public. Um, so there'll be about two days left when this goes on. We've already made our goal. We're like 300 and something percent of our goal. So that's fine. I don't, it doesn't really matter. But if you want a shirt, if you want a flask, if you want a t-shirt, I mean, if you want a flask or, or a shot glass, the only way to get that is to go to a show that Scott or I are at or back to Kickstarter. So if you're out in like, you know, Timbuktu, BFE Alaska, you know, somewhere where we're not going to do a con at your only way to get a flask or a, or a, a shot glass is to back the Kickstarter. Um, Scott, what are you drinking today? Cause I'm going to open mine while you talk. I've got uh Lagunitas brown sugar ale. Um, and it's sugar like rogue yeah. says it. Yeah, I like sugar. Yeah. I like brown sugar. I've had it multiple times. It's good it was not what I was anticipating. Uh, well, you're not going to like it, but we've come to the agreement that that doesn't matter. So, 
It's a little malty for you, right? A little heavy? Uh, and a little no, it's, it's, it's very uh, IPA-ish. Oh. Well, it's strong, right? It's like 9, 10? It's a 10. Yeah. It's a 51 IBU. Mm-hmm. And listener, uh, yeah. Listeners. It also has uh, oh, this shit. other number on here, OG1.100. Uh, is is that a beer thing? OG uh, could stand for original gravity, which is uh, pardon. Original gravity. Gravity is a thing you consider when you homebrew a beer. You consider the gravity of it. Is there a different gravity for for beer than there is for the rest of the world? It's something to do. It, it's something you consider when you homebrew. Huh. I know from the one time I homebrewed. Just take it from an expert. The one time I homebrewed, I had to take into account gravity. All right, so Lagunitas from Southern California, great brewery. I love their IPA. I love brown sugar. I don't want to hear it. You could slam that beer all you want. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Okay. You plug your ears at the end. Good. Um, did you hear the cork come out of my bottle a minute ago? No. Very, very loudly and violently. It scared me. I think I, I think I made a ah sound when it popped <laughs> open. Um, so, so I'm finally breaking into uh, a bottle that was bought for me by Jay Gonzo on my birthday. So almost three months ago, two and a half months ago, he bought me a bottle of La Fin du Monde because I, I made a comment that I would never buy a $10 bottle of beer or I didn't want to buy a $10 bottle of beer. But uh, a friend of the program, Matt, Matt Goodall, said this is his favorite beer, La Fin du Monde. And I said, I'm never going to buy it. So then the next day I show up at my birthday party and uh, or my birthday celebration because it's a celebration. Uh, Gonzo showed up and he brought it to me for my birthday. But then I went on a diet and I don't know why my voice just cracked, but I went on a diet. <laughs> I went on a diet the day after my birthday. So I, I just, I've finally been able to crack into the La Fin du Monde Belgian triple ale, 9% from uh, Unibro, Unibrow, Unibro. I'm going to go with Unibro, Canadian brewery. Okay, it's a Canadian brewery. It's a Belgian ale with a French name. Yeah, well, I mean French Canada. It's from it's from uh, Ontario, I think. So it's part of French Canada. Um, but the brewery is actually owned by uh, Sapporo, so it's actually owned by a Japanese company now. But I did a couple things here uh, in my deep deep dive deep dive uh, northern Tick Show Villa research. You're getting is, deep into everything today, which, which is which is Wikipedia. Uh, as of 2016, this is the most awarded Canadian beer ever. Mm. And if you've ever had Molson, it sucks. So, I mean, I don't know what else they have. They have Molson. They have this. Anyways. Moosehead. Um, Moosehead. You're right, right. Okay. So, this is better than all those, apparently. And on my uh, metric, it is a 4.04 out of 5. So, it might be the highest ranked beer I've ever tried. Okay, I do have some Beer Advocate uh, Theater for you. And it's hard for me to say theater because I grew up saying theater because my parents are from the South. My grandparents are from the South. So I grew up saying theater, which I get made fun of all the time. But it's No, theater. that's how you say it. Theater. No, it's, it's theater. No, theater. No, it's theater. Let's keep talking about this, Joe, on this. Yeah. Um, so Beer Advocate Theater uh, is from a Chrysostom. Chrysostom. Okay. And he gave it, everyone gives this beer high praise. He gave it a low one, so I, I, I uh, chose this for the, its low, uh, low rating. <clears throat> I dispense with the ordinary, ordinarily long, he, I'm sorry, he said ordinary, he should have said ordinarily. Let me start again. <clears throat> 
I dispense with the ordinary long disclaimer, discussion of methodology, preamble, and anecdote. This beer is undrinkable. It tastes like a tarted up wheat beer or blue moon. I hate wheat beer. I can't judge this according to style. Sorry, I had one sip and almost spit it up. I had high expectations for this beer and was severely disappointed. I'd rather have 10 Bud Lights topped off with a Pabst than a single shot of this crap all eight days of the seven day week. Avoid like the plague. Huh. I like mm. your reflection on sorry. <laughs> well, it was uh, according to style, space, dash, space, sorry. 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 First taste, it, it tastes like a Belgian, but less like a Belgian that I hate. So our guest today, we're at, we have a guest, is uh, A.A.Ron Campbell. Aaron is an artist living in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Duke City. And uh, he's a friend friend of mine. I, I think you know him. You've met him, right, Aaron? I met him. Yeah. I met him. Yeah. So uh, we're going to interview Aaron because his, his new book, Infidel from Image, uh, drops today. So when this, when this podcast comes out, you could run right to your fucking store and buy Infidel. So we can do spoilers. Yeah, and you can also buy whatever Scott has out in the store. I don't know if he has anything out next Wednesday, but he might. But if he don't, you can just, whatever. Just get the last couple issues of Bat Wound because they were great. Nobody uh, tells me nothing. <laughs> just click on who you want to see, Scott. Yeah, I know. Work. Okay, it's magic. Okay. I would like for it to be a split. Otherwise, screen. it just... Otherwise, yeah, right. Like, are you like in a dark, dark dungeon? Ryan's I'm camping. My, I'm on my desktop, which does not have its own camera, so I have an external camera, but the lighting is fucked up. I guess I could do this. Yeah, That's it better. looks like a horror movie. Still look like a, still look like a horror movie. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. get better. Um, all right, so. Uh, all right, so Aaron, what are you drinking today? No, so I figured I would. Uh, 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 promote a local New Mexico uh, brewer, um, uh, and I am drinking a Monk's Triple Ale, which is brewed by Abbey Brewing Company. Uh, it's actually like actual okay. uh, Franciscan is... monks make this beer. Yeah, there's a there's a, there's an actual monastery up uh, about an hour and a half northwest out of Santa Fe uh, <laughs> called the, the it's called Christ in the Desert, and that's where they brew. Yeah, yeah, they brew, and they're actually like, they're like a big deal. They're like almost like brewing rock stars in in New Mexico now, like especially in Santa Fe. Like whenever they show up in town for lunch, like everybody knows who they are. They all have their brown habits on. <laughs> so, but it's actually it's really good stuff. This is one of my favorite local beers, and uh, it is a gentle nine point two percent. So. So what is that? What does a bottle of that run you? Is it expensive because they're ah, monks in yeah. robes? <laughs> no, like a four pack is like nine dollars. So it's less. It, I I would call it like I, w- I would say it's like on par with like a, a dogfish head kind of beer, um, but not as expensive as like a four pack of dogfish. Well, I was going to talk a little bit about how much I love uh, I love Marvel so. and I love Tractor. Does Tractor does Tractor brew their own beer or are they just a bar? Mm. No, they brew their own beer. They don't bottle it though. Oh, which I don't. I don't know track. why they why they haven't started packaging their their beers. They should because yeah, that's one of my favorites. And because we live like just I don't know a few blocks away from one of the Tractor uh, locations, 
And then, uh, yeah, Marble. And Marble's expanded like hell here in town. There's like a... when I, Last time I was there, they had two tasting rooms, both downtown. Yeah, now there's there's just the one now downtown, but they've expanded. So it's huge. It's got like a second story patio area. And oh, wow. Like a whole like live music venue area outside um, under a canopy. And then they... But they've opened up, I think, two more locations in town. Uh, okay. So... One by actually by where my my sister works, and then uh, I'm not sure where the other one is, but <clears throat> we don't get those ones too too much. I mean the the big location downtown feels a little like uh, it's too clubby, I guess. Like feeling uh, the marble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had it's, like a food truck out front last time I was there. Yeah, there's always really good food trucks, but the crowd is a little too young for. For Peepaw at this point. <laughs> right. right. So, <laughs> but uh, no, we keep getting, we keep getting new breweries though. Like there's one yeah. that just opened up like three blocks from my house called High and Dry. And it's really good. There, like every week a new one opens up here in town. I, I can't right. believe like the entire city of Albuquerque doesn't have like a gigantic you know, pot belly at this point. Well, that's that's kind of how like Flagstaff is where I live. I think uh, we have a population of seventy thousand, and that includes the university. And there's like nine breweries. Yeah, you know, and they're all within like three miles of each other. So, <laughs> all right, Scott, you're making a face. Am I too loud? Am I not coming in? What are you making the face for, Scott? No, you're coming in. So, uh, Scott, you got anything you want to get into before we get into it? No, I just, I just want to thank Aaron for joining us. Oh, yeah, sure. No, thanks for having me on such short notice. Yeah, our producer got the times wrong. <laughs> you know you know what? Aaron, I have several questions for you. The first one is, we've been in a pool together. That's secondary. Uh, <laughs> we'll just about... leave it there. <laughs> uh, so I know you're a painter and also a comic book artist. Yeah. And, and I assume if you get a good contract or whatever the hell they call it when you're a painter, that pays better than comics. So talk about that. Talk about that difference. Like, would you rather draw com- Would you rather draw a 20 page comic or would you rather spend six months on a series of paintings? Like what's your, you're talking dollar wise though. Yeah. What's your background? What's your passion? What's your, how does it trade off money wise? Jesus. How many uh, questions are you going to ask? You can answer <laughs> one of them. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I, I could, I could do this by kind of, giving the history of the past like two years of my life which was what's your what's your degree in okay so my degree <laughs> yeah because you got a degree you got the beard you got the hat let's you got just a degree. let's just keep this going but like let's just keep asking new questions before i can answer <laughs> the old ones <laughs> i wonder if this is how mark Marin does it <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> um yeah, so my degree is in illustration. I went to the I went to undergrad at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, and then I went to grad school. Uh, I took like a year off between grad and undergrad, and I went to grad school uh, in New York at uh, School of Visual Arts, and I did illustration there too. the The uh, department was called uh, it's really hoity toity. It's called uh, illustration as visual essay. So, <laughs> so actually, it was. Like it's it was actually surprising to me like at the time that they didn't have more of a sequential art kind of focus at SVA because 
the entire program was uh, set up to was set up around uh, telling stories via series. So, like all of the projects we did at SVA were series projects. Um, like in the first year, we had to do a book and like all kinds of stuff. So, but uh, there wasn't really any. I, I think because I I went to grad school with you know Benjamin Mara. He Name did. Familiar. He yeah. did. Like he like current like I think the last like big thing he did was uh, he drew a a story for uh, Heavy Metal magazine uh, that was written by Grant Morrison. But he has a lot of like these little indie kind of like ironic kind of exploitation books that he does. Like uh, one of them was called Night Business, and um, I can't remember what all the other ones are. But he has like a really kind of throwback style. At any rate, he was the only one that was actually doing comics when we were in school, and I was focusing on painting and specifically fantasy book cover illustration. Um, and so when I got out of college, and I, well, let me back up. I, I studied uh, under a really prolific fantasy illustrator named Donato Giancola. Um, and then immediately after I got out of grad school, I started pursuing that career. And I did a little bit of stuff here and there. Like you can actually see, like if I, like that, that is one of my thesis paintings from grad school okay, and then well, there's there's two of us that can see that yeah can two see of it? us so we can i yeah yeah just so just so you two get an idea and then there's there's one of my book covers but um so so is it fair to say like a uh i'm terrible at this but like a raphaelite like a realistic style is that right yeah like pre-raphaelite i never really yeah. liked pre-raphaelites but then i guess like that's what everybody says and i was like oh okay yeah i guess i can what, see what that. would you say um, I always say that when I'm painting, it's in a sort of Northern Renaissance style glaze painting, which doesn't really mean anything to anybody who doesn't know anything about our history. But <laughs> Scott, 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 Scott's cracking me the fuck up. I, we got to start recording these video calls. I don't know what the fuck any of that meant. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't really do it anymore. But uh, yeah, so like the, the, the point is that I couldn't really make any headway in fantasy book illustration because it takes me too long to paint a painting. And uh, so I did okay, a handful... It, it takes you too long? Well, so what do publishers want? I mean, what, what time frame do are they looking at? Or what seems reasonable to them? Two weeks. Yeah. And it takes me like a month to four months to do a painting. So you don't do a I had to... You don't, you don't digitally paint? No, I've never really gotten in, dived into that. And when I was starting, it wasn't really a thing. So, right, right, right. Because um, that was like in 2003 when I graduated from uh, SVA. So, so, yeah, I mean, like, in order to meet those deadlines, I had to sacrifice uh, the quality of my work. And so it just, it, I never found the right work, work balance. And so then I ultimately ended up in comics, like, by accident almost. I'll go through the whole story. So basically, uh, in undergrad, I uh, a couple of really good friends of mine were uh, uh, Philip Sablick and uh, another guy named Robert Randall. Um, you know Philip Sablick because he's the marketing director for marketing and publishing director for Boom now. And uh, but you wouldn't know Rob. Rob um, he worked at like the two of them both after after school they started working for Diamond. 
distributors as brand managers. And then Phil got recruited to go to Top Cow and then made his way over to Boom. And then Rob, he, he stayed at Diamond for a very long time, and now he, he does digital publishing. So at any rate, when we, like after grad school, the, the t- without getting into too much detail, Rob started writing a comic. Um, one of his one of his brands that he was in charge of was uh, Arcaea Studio Press, before they were bought up by Boom, um, and uh, so he was really good friends with Mark Smiley, and uh, kind of pitched the idea of this book called The Black Knight. It was a medieval fantasy kind of thing, uh, and Mark really liked it, but he wanted to see artwork. So Rob asked me if I would draw like the pitch, or whatever, and I was like. Sure, why not? And at that point, you know, like I kind of had given up on the idea of comics as a kid. I loved comics when I was before before going into undergrad. I that's all I wanted to do all through middle school, elementary, high school. All I cared about was drawing comics, and I was totally obsessed with Image and like the whole like Image crew. And uh, so, but in 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 undergrad, like no, it was it completely confounded. Uh, our professors. They had no understanding of the comic genre. They were all editorial illustrators. And so the only way I could kind of maintain the kind of geekiness to my work was by focusing on fantasy. So anyway, I was like, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll do this and I can fulfill that childhood dream and I'll go back to, you know, trying to pursue my fantasy illustration, whatever. And uh, it took me two years to draw that first issue because I was working full time uh, elsewhere. And I finally got it done. Went out to San Diego to promote the book through Arkea at the time. And while I was there, I ran into my friend Phil again. And I hadn't seen Phil for a couple of years. Um, we'd all kind of moved away at this point. And, uh, and he, you know, I, I told him about the book, showed him the work. He was like, oh, wow, this is great stuff. I'll introduce you to some people. And then he introduced me to Nick Barucci, president of Dynamite. And it was like three months later, he offered me... Uh, the Sherlock Holmes book that I did it was my first published book with uh, uh, Leia Moore and John Repion, and that's been that ever since. So, fast forwarding, however, like about three years—I guess it was three years ago now, or two and a half years ago—I was getting so burnt out drawing comics, and I wasn't really feeling—I I didn't really feel like I was like making any real headway. I was like getting opportunities to work with really great authors. But without a lot of recognition, like unfortunately, like Di- Dynamite has never really been able to build recognition for their books the way that other indie publishers have been able to. So even though like I've worked with Matt Wagner and Garth Ennis and Leia Moore and John Repion and uh, Andy Diggle, you know, like it just like it never really got me over the hump into the type of books I really wanted to do. And it didn't get me, you know, it didn't, it wasn't really getting me much work outside of dynamite. So I, and I was just, I don't know. I was just, I was kind of getting like, I had been kind of, uh, 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 shoehorned and kind of labeled as a guy who does pulp comics. And so that's all I was getting plain clothes, kind of pulpy stuff. Tell me about it. (laughs) <laughs> but I wasn't as successful as you, so I was a less successful version of you. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. So, 
Yeah, so, I mean, like, I was just like, I can't, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And so, just th- through my, my wife, my wife works for the Department of Cultural Affairs here in New Mexico. And just through, like, her workplace functions, I would start to meet a lot of kind of the mover and shakers in the fine arts uh, industry here in New Mexico. And I happened to meet these two collectors, uh, art collectors, who live down in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And uh, they kind of became enamored of like me and the work, the painting that I've done in the past. And, and I had kind of talked about how I, you know, like these ambitions I had to kind of move into fine art. And so they commissioned me like on the spot to do like a large scale painting and for a lot of money. And I, and so then I, I finished up my comic work that I had with, like I was finishing up uh, Uncanny at the time and basically told him, I was like, after I'm done with this, I'm going to go on hiatus for a while and I'm going to kind of explore this idea. And it took me six months to do that painting. It was like a big historical piece based on New Mexico history, Spanish colonial history. And uh, like, it was great. And afterwards I spent another like month or two kind of, I, I decided that I didn't, I didn't want to, if I was going to continue painting, I didn't want to continue painting in this like old Renaissance glazing style. I wanted to reteach myself how to paint uh, what's called impasto, wet on wet. Um, and so I spent the next two months kind of reteaching myself how to paint. And then all of that money I made from the painting ran out. And then I was like, shit, I, like there's like nothing happening. I'm, I'm not getting any traction with the, the fine art gallery scene out here. And that's the other thing too. In those like six to eight months, I really was like, fine art the, the world of fine art really sucks like it's really it, it's really shitty because at least with like at least with comics like you can you can get to a point where you can get like really kind of uh like beat down by the workload but you always have the community which is an incredible community of people and friends and everybody is very cool and fun to hang out with but in fine arts it's just like it's just fucking rich people who you have nothing in common with and it's it's impossible to carry a conversation or or really enjoy the company of like 90% of these people. So I went back to Diamond, I kind of crawled back to Diamond and said like, I'm ready to work. And it took about a month and then they put me with James Robinson on Felix Leiter. And at that point I decided, you know what, I'm abandoning uh, traditional media altogether now and I'm going to work solely in on the computer, on my Cintiq. And I haven't turned, I, I haven't looked back since. So I really enjoyed that whole process of being able to kind of rethink the way that I work. And then with the new book, Infidel, it's exactly what I always wanted to do. So how did you get on board with Infidel? So how did that happen? Uh, so Jose Villarubia um, kind of contacted me out of the blue. And for those who aren't familiar, Jose is uh, like an incredibly prolific uh, colorist. In fact, I think uh, he is technically like he, he posted up a chart of of like page count for colorist. And he, he has done more. He has colored more pages than any other colorist, I think, in the history of comics. Oh wow! Wait, 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 wait. So I only know him through Jay Lee and now you. Yeah. So what? What else? What? What else has he colored? 
And I can just, cut this out. Well, just, you know, he's well, covered more pages than anybody. You want him to go into this? No, I just I'm <laughs> curious because I only, I only know him through Jay Lee and now Aaron. So what else? He he does a ton of work for Marvel. He's done. I mean, he's worked for okay. every single company. He does a lot of like he like he uh, does a lot of work in recoloring and re well not recoloring but remastering old comics. Um, he's yeah. done a lot of work with like Das. I, I don't know if you're familiar with any of like the Spanish uh, comic illustrators like Das Pastores or no. Uh, no. Uh, David. Now with high with him. <laughs> oh yeah, Das Pastores. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, but I, I mean, I couldn't tell you all the stuff that he's done. I mean, it's just it's it's a laundry list. But at any rate. Uh, Jose contacted me because I, I've known Jose for a long time through Micah where I went to undergrad because he was he was a professor at Micah and he had just begun his teaching career when I was in undergrad. I think I was maybe a sophomore or junior and I never had him as a teacher, but I would sit in on like he would come into classes a lot to do talks and stuff because he was also beginning his comic career at the time well real quick what is micah micah maryland institute college of art is that's the acronym that's what they say okay that's the yeah so yeah uh so anyway yeah like uh so he contacted me because uh uh porn sack the author of infidel was searching for somebody to draw this book and uh this would be his his first uh, written series that he's done and uh, after being a, ver- a vertigo editor for years and years and years and then also I think he also headed up or helped establish DC Entertainment the TV division uh, and uh, uh, so he was really good friends with Jose because Pornsack was his editor for years and uh, so so Jose just thought of me and asked me if I'd be interested. And I was like, absolutely. Um, and, and <laughs> the icing on the cake is that porn sack. It was offering like a really good page rate. So like I, the way that we set it up, like we both share ownership in the book and he's giving me a page rate. And so then he's just going to recoup his costs off the front end um, as the book comes out. So, yeah. but then we share ownership and all yeah. rights and stuff. Awesome. Yeah, we don't talk about that a lot on the show, but that's important, the whole page rate versus ownership. And you can have both. You can take a lower percentage of one and have a bigger percentage of another. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a whole different conversation. But, uh, Scott, did you have a question before I log into my other questions? And before Aaron, you log I, I, Well, Aaron, I can cut all this shit out. So I think Scott's, I think you can Scott just cut is, out the whole interview. <laughs> Aaron, you look good. I like your I like your beard trim, Aaron. No, oh, thank you. Yeah, you look good, buddy. <laughs> my yeah. wife wanted it a little bit shorter. Yeah. And uh, I, I think my barber was a little hesitant to like really yeah. go deep. It's a good, good barber. <laughs> I, I guess as long as we're going to talk about the book now, why don't you give us a, a quick synopsis? Okay, so uh, Infidel, like the 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 quick you know cover is uh, that it is a horror. It's a horror book. Um, and it takes place in New York City in an apartment building that is haunted. The way that Pornsack always describes it is it's sort of like a haunted house story for the modern age. Um, and uh, so, 
basically, we have um, our main character, Aisha. There, well, no, actually, actually I, no spoilers. I'm, I'm going to try to avoid spoilers here. So we have our we begin with our main character, Aisha, who is a young kind of mid twenties Muslim American girl who is uh, engaged to uh, uh, like just a white dude named Tom who has a daughter named Chris, and they have just recently moved into uh, Tom's mother's apartment um, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, for like super, super cheap because uh, sometime in the recent past, probably within the last year, we, we never really kind of, we never really explain exactly when, there was a incident that happened at the building which resulted in a explosion and uh, so there's an entire floor of the building that is pretty much gutted. And uh, because of those events, like I said, I don't want to give any spoilers, so I'm not going to really go into exactly what happened or what the ramifications of that were. But uh, because of what happened uh, and how it happened, uh, it has basically caused the, the rent in the apartment to plummet. So Aisha's moved in. She's also gotten her best friend Medina to move in a floor below. I think they also then got another friend of theirs, uh, Reynolds, to move in. Um, all like, you know, sort of it's like this honeypot um, that just kind of opened up. And then there's a couple of characters who predate this explosion. So, and when we begin, Aisha is kind of feeling she's kind of cracking mentally and so we begin with this kind of like really stark image of this like hideous creature ghost thing that is uh kind of slithering up on her and throughout the entire first issue we kind of establish how we're not really certain of the reality of what's happening, whether this is something like really actual, like actually like supernatural, or if it's something that's happening within Aisha's mind. But the whole idea is that it's it's this it's this girl who's trying to navigate sort of the intensity of of what's happening right now around Muslim people in in the United States and and you know just regular everyday muslim americans trying to live their life within this new climate that exists um and so there's a lot of like what pornsack often talks about is how you know he wanted to write a story that kind of reflects uh like his community like you know pornsack's not muslim but he you know he lives in la and he has like a very kind of diverse multicultural friend base and so he wants he wanted to create a, a horror story because he loves hor the horror genre but he wanted to create a story that kind of reflected that uh those relationships in that community um, and kind of the things that they kind of talk about and deal with on a daily basis um uh in you know just in today's you know shit fest <laughs> so and as as the story goes along, like again, without giving spoilers away, as the story goes along, you know, more and more gets revealed about you know what has actually transpired in this building, and uh, how it impacts the people who have decided to move into it. And again, like all of the headlines say, you know, that this this is a horror story that explores the idea of xenophobia through a supernatural lens. And so that's very true. So, I mean, the, the idea that there are these supernatural entities that kind of feed off of hate and rage and fear is sort of central to the story.
hopefully that was a good answer. It's <laughs> fantastic. So I um... wasn't listening. Can you <laughs> repeat? <laughs> okay, so infidel is about. <laughs> So ethnicity and real world, bi- real world bias and politics are at the forefront of this series. Yeah. So you had to you had to do a lot of research. Um, how much research did you do as far as like? Uh, I mean, uh, I know you. I know your wife. You, neither of you are Muslim, but you both understand the immigrant American experience. Yeah. So how how, how much research did you do into this? Because I I uh, upon reading the 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 first issue. Uh, it seems to be really uh, well, you know, seeped in, in in research. So, how much research did you do? How much research do you like to do? Also, uh, research. Well, I know, like, especially in the first issue, the majority of of the research would have been done by Pornsack in his attempt to, you know, create a, a real sense of verisimilitude uh, for the characters and make them feel like real people instead of caricatures. And so for me, um, like what was really important was that the the look of the characters didn't come off as caricature because it's so easy to do. There's two in, in let's see in the first issue, I'm trying to think who shows up. Um, well, I, I definitely like in terms of like all the accoutrements of of Islam. I I did. I mean, it's not it's not difficult research. It's all stuff you can do in like 20, 20 to thirty minutes to get you know the 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 items correct, the hijab correct, and all that stuff. So like that was you know I, I wanted to make sure that it, like all of that stuff was correct. Um, there's uh, like as we go along, there's like scenes of like Aisha you know in uh, Muslim prayer, and so I wanted to make sure that that was uh, that was portrayed accurately. Um, you know, the way that, man, like, there, there's so many aspects where it's just like, I would, I would sit there and I'd be like, wait a second, stop, hop online real quick and make sure that this, this looks correct. And so I would just, and then all that stuff is, is fairly simple. And so, uh, but, it, but in terms of like, especially the look at the characters and making sure, because as we go along, you'll see there's a couple Asian characters who show up. There's her best friend, Medina, who shows up in the first issue, who's a black Muslim, and uh, or well, she's a, she's a black secular Muslim. She's not really practicing anymore. Aisha is Aisha is struggling with her faith and her identity. In, in the first issue, you learn that she's had a falling out with her parents because she's engaged to an Anglo man, and uh, so those are those are intense you know uh, issues that she's struggling with um, in the story. And so basically, it was just for me, especially at the beginning, it was more about making sure that. Um, when I drew the characters that they looked authentic and that they did not feel like caricatures. Now, where, where I really was able to do a lot of contribution to the story was in these spirits that show up. Because Pornsack kind of had like a vague idea or notion of, of what these ghosts should look like when they show up. But he hadn't done... Really, he hadn't really given any thought to who they were in life yet. Like that was something that was sort of like on the back burner. It was like as we go along, we're going to learn more and more about who these characters were. But I haven't really thought about that yet. So, but I need that because like I'm the kind of person who likes to do a lot of uh, research on the characters to figure out 
you know, it's kind of like in in acting where like characters will create backstories, like actors will create backstories for their characters. You know, shit that doesn't even end up in the movie, but it's it's there for their own benefit so they can get in the head of the character better and portray it portray it more authentically. So that's sort of what I did with these ghosts. I kind of took the ideas that Pornsack had, and then I was like, well, hey, why don't we do this and this? And maybe we could add this in, and then um, I could have these kind of visual cues in here, and then they would kind of have, they would kind of represent these aspects of who these characters were when they were alive. And so what I tried to do was uh, make the outward appearance of these spirits reflect their, their inner turmoil i guess as uh, you know in terms of who they were in life and it's hard i wish i could talk more about like because I, I know porn wants me to to like kind of stay closed lip because a lot of the stuff gets revealed so it's it's hard to discuss but you'll notice like the the first ghost that shows up in issue one has a big x on his shoulder like a tattoo and that's important i'm not going to say what it is but it's important to who his character was and that was an idea i had um, uh, and, and just that little X, um, if you, if you look into it and you find the correct thread, cause there's lots of X's mean a lot of different things for a lot of different like organizations and groups. But if you find the right one, then it speaks a lot to who that person was when he was alive. Um, and sort of perhaps where a lot of his anger comes from, uh, and, and why he is, why he remains basically um does that make sense (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean other than that other than that like the the entire design of the building that they're in like that was my idea and that was totally like the whole building that they're in is based on the building i lived in in jackson heights queens um which was an old like shitty pre-war like fourth floor walk up i was on the very top floor i'd fucking walk up those stairs every goddamn day and everybody who lived in that building was just a fucking weirdo like (laughs) probably me too so like (laughs) so you just and you would but you would never get like the full story of who these people were you could just kind of hear them through the walls and see and you pass them in the halls every once in a while and maybe get a glimpse inside their door and the just the little fragments that you get all they do is like create more mystery about who the fuck are these like crazy fucking people. Like who are the fucking crazy people that live in goddamn New York? Like New York was so fucking weird to me. Like it was, it was so, it's such a bizarre place of like, like it was so like, there's so many shut-ins in New York. People who like have, have like, they get their food delivered. Like, like in, um, in that, that uh, web series, uh, uh, high maintenance. There's that one that that one uh, uh, homosexual guy who's never left his apartment, uh, and he he he's obsessed with Lacroix, the the flavored soda waters, and oh, I was like, yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's it rings so completely true. Like every character yeah. in that show, they're, they're so idiosyncratic, and that was like every experience I had with with people in New York, and especially that building that I lived in, and so that's what I was hope that was I was really wanting to capture in that building so there there are a few characters like there's definitely one character who the, the, there's an old man in the first issue who's like this paranoid like like just terrified you know little waif of an old man and Aisha runs runs into him 
you know, as she's going, uh, you know, up the stairs and she kind of gives him like a, a really like innocent smile and wave and he like flips out and dodges into his apartment building. And I don't know how many times that happened to me coming home at night where I'd see somebody like either going to like take the trash out or, or like maybe I'm coming up right behind them as they're going into their apartment and they look over their shoulder and they see me and then they go, oh, and they like dart into their apartment as fast as they yeah. can. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a buddy who lives in uh, outside of D.C. He's not mm-hmm. he doesn't work in D.C. proper, but he's within like 40 minutes of D.C. And he talks about like uh, he never has to leave his house because Uber delivers all of his food <laughs> and all these apps like so. So he talks about that. But yeah, so um, sounds heavenly. Yeah, yeah. it sounds sounds great. So uh I'm going to jump ahead of Scott here. I don't I was just <laughs> going to ask how it ends. Yeah, so I'm going to say everyone uh, dies. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Jose uh, uh Villa Robia, Jose Villa Robia. Villa Ru- an et- he, Yeah, sorry. Villa Villa Rubia. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm trying to be more ethnic than necessary. Here. Don't don't yeah. try. <laughs> so Jose Villa Rubia yeah, uh, he's also listed as an editor. So explain that process. Yeah, yeah. Well, first I'll stipulate that this is the first time Jose is edited, and he specifically agreed. I think part of his agreement to do the book was that he would get to edit it because Jose, I, I guess, has has been wanting to start, has been wanting to edit for a long time now, and so this was his entree. Yeah, he wants to tell the story. Well, no, like, he's actually, I mean, like, other than, like, I, I well, to tell you the truth, I, I don't really know the conversations that Jose and Pornsack have when it's, when it, when they're actually in the editing process of the, the story. And I know that he gives feedback, but I also know that Jose, like, he, he's not concerned with telling story, his own stories. He just likes the, the process of, of editing and kind of, forging a great story that collaborative process with the writer so um he's he's been very like he's he's really kind of found that porn sack and i mesh really well when it comes to the brainstorming aspects of the story um because porn sack will write and then i'll read it too after he's done after jose's done the initial edit and then like i'll jump in and i porn sack and i will start having these long conversations about the story um so uh, so in, th- in that regard, he is like, he takes a very kind of, uh, uh, a disassociated stance with this. Like he only inter- injects himself in, in just the right places when necessary. Um, but like, I, I think like, it, it, you know, to answer your question, you know, what's it really like when the colorist is also the editor, I have so much trust and faith in, in Jose as, as a colorist and because of his pedigree as a uh, professor um, and uh, that that and just our relationship, you know, and friendship that we've had over the past 10 years or so that, you know, I really trust everything that he says and that everything that he says is thoughtful and it's thoughtfully delivered. And so if he has a suggestion, even if if like at first glance, I might think. Uh, I, I don't know about that. I, I give myself some time to consider it. And ultimately, I, I think in nine, nine times out of 10, I end up seeing, you know, that that Jose's uh, ideas, his suggestions, his criticisms and critiques or whatever 
are absolutely correct. So I'm, and then ultimately I'm more than happy to, you know, oblige. I, I'm not, I, like, I, I'm not like a finic, finicky kind of artist who gets like all butthurt when somebody tells him like, do this, do that, change this, you know, like, I know there's a lot of artists out there who are, who are very like kind of pig headed about, about, you know, like, you know, this is the idea I had and you're like everyone else's ideas uh, are like like almost like assaults on what I'm doing, but um, yeah, and then you have your your whole spectrum across that, but <laughs> but like for me, like I I I am utterly I'm completely bought into the idea that that comics are a collaborative process, and it, and the more the team works together, the better the the product becomes. So. Uh, so it's been so personally it's been great. He's been a he's actually been probably the best editor I've ever worked with outside of say like I, I worked with Shelley Bond for like a hot second um, on a house of mystery thing a long time ago. But uh, but other than that, like Jose, definitely one of the best editors I've worked with, if not the best. Um, well, OK, I guess speaking of editors was the idea for Aisha to be a comic book editor was that something that was there from the get-go or was, or is that somebody's idea like a- after the after the idea had been pitched to you said oh well wait wait, she, wait she was in comics she, hold on a second is she a yeah she's a star editor? wars editor right it's been a long time since i've read issue one so <laughs> i will have to go back well okay so i know well i'll tell you like the well, I can tell you that the Star Wars connection is Pornsack's thing, because um, Pornsack is a big Star Wars fan. So he wanted to, like, he wanted to put that in there as a way to kind of uh, make Aisha like very relatable. Not only as kind of a, a like he wanted to play against like your standard types, where it's like usually like you know, Muslim characters in, in TV are portrayed as, well, A, either terrorists or, like, incredibly serious, serious people, you know? And and so, like, you're kind of, like, masters of none kind of kind of idea of, like, Muslims is, is something that he was much more interested in. He wanted to make a character that was, that was, if you, if you took away, like, if you cho- chose to ignore their faith, they're just like any other kind of like middle America kind of beta person, you know, just a dorky kind of person who has inter- has who has the same kind of interests as so many other people do. And and then the other aspect of that was then to be able to really quickly establish the rapport between Aisha and the little girl, Chris, Um so that they have like all, like automatically the, a common bond that is that is easily understood by everybody right off the bat. Star Wars is cool, and kids like Star Wars, adults like Star Wars, and people have Star Wars birthday cakes, and you know, like right away, you don't you don't you don't need any history to figure that out. So that's really where that, uh, as far as I understand, that's where that came from. Uh, now as for the, <laughs> her actual job, I'm going to have to go back and <laughs> reread. I feel so embarrassed like, <laughs> that I've totally forgotten that because like her occupation is really only important in issue one in that like one scene 
So once we get past that, then it really we really start getting into the psychology of Aisha herself. You know what? While I was reading it, there was a point maybe three quarters of the way for through the first issue where I got really nostalgic for a young adult book series called uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Does anybody remember this? Absolutely. Um, yeah. A, Stephen a, a Gamble. Lot of the, yeah, a lot Stephen of the Gamble. ghost imagery reminded me of uh, that stuff. That was accidental, That's to great. tell you the truth. Um, but but I've gotten that a lot since... Now, no now things change. But I've gotten that a lot since since I started doing the work on, on this. <laughs> the oh, Stephen wow. Gamble. I was like, really? I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, not that I'm trying to ape anybody, but like, that that's great. awesome. I loved it. Like, <laughs> so, because to tell you the truth, like, I, in, in my mind, I was thinking more like Dave McKean, Kent Williams, those kind of ideas. And like, uh, but, but scary stories to tell in the dark is probably just always kind of resided in the back of my head because it's one of the first, like I, I have, I have the, I have the first edition of scary stories to tell in the dark that I got when I think I was like 11 years old and that thing scared the fucking shit out of me, but I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It, I, I couldn't get enough of that, uh, of that stuff. And so it's just I, that has always kind of stayed in the back of my head, and I remember because it'd been so long since I'd looked at it. I remember it being sort of like ink washy, and then I opened it up and I was like, "Holy shit! This is all done with like pencil, just like graphite pencil." And if you like get really close, you can just see like how delicate his line is and his shading, like because it's not like there's none of that like 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 rubbing the graphite to create tone it's all done with just very delicate like hatch marks and uh yeah he was i don't know what happened to that guy because like that work was so incredible i mean he was an absolute master of, of the horror genre and if you look at like his other stuff his non-horror stuff it was so completely i mean it's it, the style the the similarity and style is there but it's so different in tone. It's it's like two different people, two different minds created this. But that's pretty awesome. I I, 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 I love that people keep saying that. <laughs> I'm really interested in not necessarily religion and faith, but why people believe what they believe. Um, the idea that Aisha is Muslim, how, how big a factor is that? In the overall story, uh, you would you it, would think it's something to have to mention it. No, it, it is. It's important, and it's in truth, it's probably more important to the ghosts than it is to oh, anyone else in the story. But I, <laughs> let me pause. I keep sniffling, and I'm I have to apologize for that because I know it's going to sound awful <laughs> in the final. But <laughs> goddamn allergies, damn you, spring. Um, at any rate, uh, <laughs> uh, I think it, like, I can relate heavily to Aisha's dilemma, uh, because I come from a very fundamentalist Baptist background. Um, I'm from Southeast Missouri and I would go and visit my grandparents every, every summer I would stay in my grandparents place for like three weeks. And it was out in the middle of nowhere in farmland. And it was always during the fucking revivals. 
Always. <laughs> every every fucking summer. Revival. And that those revivals are like perhaps the most torturous thing you can like submit a child to. Because it's like every day you have to go to church and you go to church for like three or four hours at a time. And then like on like I think Sundays and Wednesdays you go twice. Uh-huh. It was it was t- horrifying. I would sit. I would try to get a sit like a seat by a window because it was one of those little small like one room church like church houses whatever with like just like maybe six rows of pews and so i'd always like rush in and try to get a seat next to the window so i at least could like kind of (laughs) kind of you know pine over the uh outside you know the freedom that exists out there and i would like sneak in like matchbox cars or whatever and kind of like i would kind of like you know, like, kind of play with them, like, by my thigh where my grandparents couldn't see them. Because if they ever saw, like, a toy, my grandmother would, like, swat me. And and then we'd have, like, these, like, doom and gloom preachers who would, like, jump over pews. And they'd be like, and the Lord said, uh, and, uh, and he'd, like, he'd, like, use the Bible like a fucking, like, cudgel. <laughs> and he was sweating. And it was awful. And so, like, just those experiences as a child has, like... Like, those are what, like, established my whole kind of, like, weird relationship with the idea of religion and and faith. And, like, I've never really been able to kind of, like, reconcile where I really stand. And so, like, I, I totally, like, understand Aisha because she's in the same place where she does not understand where she fits in. She is a modern American, like, young millennial girl who just wants to kind of be who she is, but then there's this entire structure that stands behind her that has incredibly rigid rules um, to the point where her life choice that she has now has alienated her from her parents. Yeah, And now granted, like, I don't think it would ever get, like it would never go in that direction with me and my family, at least not my immediate family, but I can understand that because... Like, I know when I was in high school, I was told not to tell my grandparents that my girlfriend was Catholic. Um, so, <laughs> so I can understand those things. <laughs> wow. That's craziness. Yeah. yeah. So that's, those are the things I find, like, really kind of compelling about the story. Because it's not about Islam. Like, there's no, there's, there's no, like... We don't get into yeah, like, I what think that's Islam is really about. Where I was going, there are a lot of horror stories that sort of use religion as like the evil force behind yeah. things. So yeah, I, I I think yeah, I was wondering if that was going to be the uh... yeah. No, it's not. Like that's the other thing. I keep telling people like infidel is not a political story. It's not about it's not about trying to get people to. Uh, like change their minds about religion or faith or the, you know, like the idea of Islam or, or anything like that. It's, it's just a story about a girl who's Islamic and comes from a religious family. And she's, it's just about her. Um, you can tell, like, that's the whole thing. Like, like so many people, like it, it just, it frustrates me to no end. Like the amount of, like the number of people who are like, keep politics and, all this shit out of my comics. My comics should just be stupid and you punch things, you know, like bad guys are bad and good guys are good. And we just punch and fight and whatever and use superpowers, you know? And it's like, 
it's like snore like i mean like eventually like like that's great for like, like that's great that those are great stories for children i loved those stories but like like you don't like you can tell every kind of story you want to tell in comics no matter what and ultimately they are just stories and yeah there are a lot of books out there that kind of try to hit you over the head with their politics and i don't particularly care for those because i think subtlety is always uh like you know you you collect more honey with you know with or you collect more bees with honeys whatever whatever but uh but uh but yeah i, I think you can tell every kind of story and there's compelling stories to be told like we could have done the same thing, but made them Buddhist or made them Hindu or made them like we could, you could even set like set it in the deep South, like where I came from and tell the same kind of story. Like with the, you know, like that movie, uh, uh, uh what was it? Mother's, uh, uh, shit. What was it? It was Jennifer Lawrence. It was one of her early movies. It took place in, in Southern Missouri. It was called nature's bone or winter's bone. Winter's Bone really hit home for me. I was like, "This, these are the people that I grew up around." <laughs> yeah. My my fam my extended family is all from Georgia, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, when you moved to New Mexico, did you did you accept? Did you understand that? Like when I moved to Arizona, I didn't think it was racist until I moved here, and it's so fucking racist. It's so mm -hmm. redneck. <laughs> Ryan just lost all of his Arizona listeners. <laughs> oh, that's good because Scott still has all of his, so it doesn't matter. Like, like, did you understand that? Like, did you think that was gonna happen when you moved here? Well, the answer, the answer on the surface is no. But the other, the like, my relationship with New Mexico is fairly deep because my brother-in-law is from New Mexico. They got my sister and brother-in-law got married when I was six, fifteen. I was all, I was almost sixteen. And so, uh, so I've been coming to New Mexico for decades at this point. So like I, I was slowly kind of, uh, I guess the words indoctrinated to sort of the cultural oddity, which is New Mexico and the weird racism that exists here. Now, granted until I actually moved here like 12 years ago, I never really, got a deep dive into it but yeah like the longer i've lived here the more i've come to realize and I'll, I'll just i'll just give you an example through my wife so my wife is first generation mexican-american and she was born and raised in albuquerque she went to a high school here called west mesa and she was never able to uh fit in anywhere we were actually just talking about this last night it's funny um but so she, and I can't remember the, the Spanish words that are like used to describe what she, or that, that were used against her. But, but here in New Mexico, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't like, this, this is all about, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out the best way to explain this. So let's say, okay, first we'll start with, with her Mexican cousins. So she still has tons of family in Mexico. And when she would go and visit her cousins in Mexico, she wasn't Mexican enough, okay? When she would go in high school, she wasn't, like, new Mexican enough. Like, she wasn't, like, like the, 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 the Hispanic population here in New Mexico didn't accept her because she was too Mexican, um, even though, like, they're all Mexican too. Like, like, it, and, and like, even though, like, but see then like here in New Mexico, there's like this whole thing about being Spanish. So there's like this really subtle racism that exists 
under the surface where it's like, oh, we're not Mexican, we're Spanish. And it's like, bullshit, because Mexicans are Spanish too. So like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Like, it's all, like, Mexi- like New Mexico was part of Mexico up until, like, it's not, it's only been, like, 100 years. It was, like, 1852 or something, I think, is when New Mexico became a state. So, like, up until then, New Mexico was part of Mexico. And so, like, there's, like, and then there's, like, this, there's this thing called Tres Culturas, which is the, the, the kind of, the coming together of the Anglo people, the Mex, the the um, the Hispanic population, and the Native population, and to this day there is incredible tension between the Hispanic population and the Native population, and they fucking hate each other. Um, and there's no like there's there's no common ground to be found. Um, so it is it's incredibly weird. The oh. the like the subtle race like the subtle race issues that exists here in New Mexico. But it's also like incredibly interesting because like New Mexico has such a deep, deep history that goes back 500 years at this point that like, if you really do a deep dive, it becomes a really interesting sort of uh, microcosm of, of race issues, race issues and how they play out over centuries. But it, and it's really easy to follow that thread because like New Mexico has such a small population that you can, it's easy to like, like see all the stories and see how they relate to each other and follow it all the way through and understand how these race relationships came to exist the way they do now. But at the same time, it's like, it's really kind of sad and, and weird. And, you know, like as a, as an outsider, like it's, it's difficult for me to like feel confident commenting on it, but like Claudia uh, is is you know like she's lived in it her entire life where she doesn't quite fit in here she doesn't quite fit in there she's constantly struggling to find the place where she feels most comfortable and so she ultimately gravitated towards i guess quote unquote white culture she was a she was a total like new wave kid in the 90s she loved blur and like all like brit pop and all that stuff and and yeah. like that's that's the that's that's the culture she ended up gravitating to because there weren't there wasn't like a there wasn't a, a like baggage brought with it like there wasn't this cultural historic histrionic baggage that came with like kids just wanting to like dye their hair like black and go dance to Britpop you know and you could forget all of that all of that bullshit. So, huh. I I, yeah. I ramble. I ramble. That, no, that it, that's all interesting because you know, like most people, the only exposure that I have to New Mexico, you know, is through the TV series, um, the Man in the City. Oh yeah, the um, Man in the City. Yeah, sorry. Anthony I thought you were going to say Longmire. Uh. <laughs> Do you do anything for uh for beard care? Use yeah, well, yeah. Oh. What's, what's going on with both both of you have amazing beards, and I have the beard of a I, I I don't do anything. Professor. I keep mine really short. I, I I don't do anything to it. Okay, so let me tell you my my annual routine. And actually, I I couldn't quite I couldn't quite persist this year. I was like, it, I I gotta get rid of this. It's it's just too much. It's it's make it's driving me insane. But my, my annual routine is that um, 
let's see. Should I start? I'll start in fall. So first day of fall. Please start I, on September first. Yeah. Now September twenty, wh- whichever day it happens, but September you know, twenty first. Yeah, September twenty first, <laughs> typically around there. Uh, I will. That's the last day I trim my beard. Uh, Good job. And okay, and then through fall and winter. I grow my winter garden, as I term it. <laughs> I grow my winter garden. And then, now, I, like I said, I couldn't make it this... I, I, I trimmed my beard last week. So I couldn't... I had three weeks left, but I was just like, I can't take it. I can't take it anymore. But yet, typically... I, I typically try to wait until the first day of spring, and then I that's the first day I trim it. So I trim it back down, uh, and then I keep it short all through su- spring and summer. Um, this is actually longer than I usually keep it. It's usually like, kind of like there, but, um, uh, so I'll probably, next time I go to my barber, I'll probably have her cut it another inch off or so, but, uh, and then, yeah. And then I keep it that, I keep it that length all through the summer. So yeah. And then I'll show you what I do now. I did, I couldn't do it this year cause I started, I started, I was like, you know what? I'm a 40 year old man. I need to start acting like an adult and go to a barber and stop trimming my beard myself because it, it just never looks right. But what I used to do, and I'll show you, let's see, okay. So what I used to do is uh, when, on that first day of spring, I would, <laughs> I would basically take a rubber band and get it as close to my chin as possible and then just snip the ponytail off. <laughs> and then, okay, and then, and then I would like finish, you know, I, I'd, I'd trim it all up like floaty <laughs> style, you know. <laughs> Well, wait, wait till you see this, because you know I mean. You haven't even started to laugh yet. Then I would create these little disgusting like troll dolls, uh, <laughs> with my beard, and I would give them as presents oh to friends. So like Andy Andy Coon has one. Uh, oh, don't don't bring Andy into this. <laughs> and I call them beard buddies, and like here is my first beard buddy. <laughs> I just took a screen capture of that so we can post it. <laughs> Yeah, and this is like the prototype. So after this, I, I actually started carve, making these out of Sculpey. So they're like, you know. I mean, what is, what is the reaction when you give that to Andy one night at the bar? What's, what's the reaction? No, it was his birthday present. <laughs> he just stared at it quizzically, like not certain how he should react or what he's supposed to do with this now. And I, I haven't asked him. I want to know if he still has it. I was like, so where's that beard buddy? <laughs> He still has it. There's no doubt. Um, so, and then other than that... Can you feel it? Yeah. <laughs> Everything uh, bad that's happened to me, he's uh, he's been doing. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I have I have some shit that I, I... Some beard shampoo and some crap I put in my beard when I get out of the shower. Alright, so you love your beard. And Infidel number one is out today. No, it's out Wednesday. Oh wait, yeah, is gonna, that is that today? Ruin. Is this that is the yeah, today? Ruin. Quote unquote. Jesus Christ! You fucking ruined everything. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so it's out today. <laughs> um, uh, wink, how, wink, nudge, uh, nudge. <laughs> how how is your beard brewed by the monks in a, on a scale of one to five? What? Say that again. Yeah, uh, you can give halves, but what's your beer? How do you rate your beer brewed by monks? Uh, oh. One to five with a half. Oh, one to five. Um, 
I would give it a four just because I can't, I, I can't, I can, I can only do about two um, before it gets a little syrupy on the tongue. Mm, so, a little heavy. Yeah. little heavy. So, but yeah, I would say, I'd say it's a solid four, solid four beer. All right. Uh, Scott, what about your, your beer? Which I have no idea what it was. What's your beer, Scott? Uh, no, the Lagunitas brown sugar. Oh yeah. Oh, beer, I love that beer. stuff. I love it. I love it. It's yeah. good. I didn't yeah. care for it. Oh, <laughs> Jesus! Nightmare scenario. I I would give brown sugar like a four. What, oh no what way, Scott! What? Two and a half at best, maybe. Oh, oh God. Good All day. Right. Good so day. Join us next week when it's me and Aaron Campbell <laughs> on the new <laughs> 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 All right. Two and a half because you don't know good beer. I'm gonna give. La Fin du Monde, which was built up like a monster. It was built up in my head. I'm going to give it like a three and a half, maybe a four. Let's find out. Three and a half. Can I, can I, can I tell a little beer story before we, before we go? Please, God. Yeah. Give us some content. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I've been to, okay. So I've been to uh, uh, this convention in England a couple times now called Thought Bubble. It's in Leeds. Humble, Humble brag. Yeah, humble brag. Yeah, it it no, it, it's I'm not I'm not it's not I, I shouldn't be humble because it, it, it I'm incredibly lucky to have been able to do this a couple times and and uh, I've never uh, it, been it's there. incredibly amazing. It's an amazing show. You've never like been probably one of the best I've ever been to. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it like it was like the it, it was uh, you know like the, my first opportunity to actually like meet a lot of writers that I've worked with, including Leia Moore and John Repion. Well, we became like fast friends in the first at the first uh, convention, and uh, so one thing that I quickly learned about England is that their beer, though very very good beer, is very low percentage beer. Like I typically, like Claudia and I, like when we pick a beer, we pick by percentage. Like if it's below seven, we're not really interested. So goddamn American hero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, in England, you're lucky to get a five. Um, yeah. So pussies, so we left them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't call them pussies. I would just say they they drink so fucking much of it. It's like like the 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 size of the beer bellies, the pop bellies in England are like monumental. Like they are they are really works of art. Because they are like these perfect, like I've seen some dudes over there that have like these perfect round, like like three foot fucking basketballs for stomachs. Anyway, Leia Moore and John Repion, they've, they've never heard of these high percentage beers that we drink over here. I was like, oh yeah, like Claudia and I, like if it's below 7%, we're not really interested. Typically we drink a beer that's around eight or nine. They're like, oh my God, like. Well, what the fuck? Like, how do you even, like, get up in the next day? And I was like, well, we only drink a few of them, you know, <laughs> instead of, instead of, like, a dozen or two. Uh, <laughs> and so, last time we went, like, we went in, last October is, is the last time we went. So, we went, and this time I was like, we're, we're bringing John and, and Leia a little present. So, at, uh, like, here... Like, I don't know about like, if there's anywhere like in Flagstaff or down in Phoenix where they do this, but our local uh, brewer, or not brewer, our local liquor store, Jubilation, to buzz market them, um, they do a Black Friday set uh, uh, special. 
Um, and uh, they get in like these really incredible like one-off beers. Um, a lot of them are like Goose Island and fucking love Goose Island. And so they do like these like like you know bourbon barrel aged oh, yeah. uh, barley wines and stouts and shit. And so we bought a couple of those um, and kind of threw them in our pack, like like the ones that they had, not from this Black Friday, but the ones that they had kind of stockpiled. And uh, so we took a couple of those, the Goose Island. Both of them were over 18%. And <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so we took them and we gave them both a like a single bottle like a like a pint bottle of an eighteen percent American beer, and they were they were utterly floored at the time, and they it took them like two months to drink them, and they drank them I think on separate nights, and so they posted on Facebook and shit like when they were drinking them, and like it is hilarious like their commentary as they drink them because it only took the one, and they were fucking shit faced. <laughs> So that's my little my little uh, spreading the uh, American beer culture to uh, to them Brits. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. I love it. Let's get fucked up. Uh, Aaron, if, if people want to find you on Twitter, where are they going to find you at? It's a at old man Campbell, <laughs> like old man, but without the D because it was yeah. too long to fit. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Okay. Yeah. At Old Man Campbell, and you can also find me on Facebook and uh, uh, at at the breweries in Albuquerque. Yeah. Okay. So on on Facebook, do they find you at Old Man Campbell? They find you at Aaron Campbell? Where just I think you? it's Aaron Campbell Arts or some shit like that. Just just yeah. look up Aaron Campbell and pretentious bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, they can follow the show on at tig underscore. Oh, we're going back to Twitter. Uh, at TIG underscore show, uh, at Scotty God, at Ryan Cody. All the past episodes, past episodes are available on TickShow.com. If you enjoy the show, uh, go to TickShow.com, support on the TIG link, and you can, no, I'm sorry, click on the support TIG link, and uh, you can support the show, and you can buy us around, you can buy a shirt. You got, you got about a week left on our Kickstarter. Scott, can you save me from this? Is there anything, Scott, to save me? here goodbye everybody yeah <laughs> yeah all right aaron i'm gonna see you i'm gonna see you in like a month and a half aaron so yeah we'll see yeah, <laughs> maybe you didn't come out last time i did a show in albuquerque you did not show up you were not out yeah i, I yeah. won't go into that but i don't do that show yeah no no no. i don't <laughs> yeah but you could have come out and had a beer well i didn't know you not... were here oh i was there yeah all right, uh, all right. So uh, buy Infidel today. Go to your store. Buy Infidel. Um, buy Batwoman. Buy Cop Copperhead, and we'll uh, talk to you next week. That worked for everybody. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm gonna hit stop. All right. I'm done. That was an outro. We come in pieces. We come in pieces. We come in pieces all because of you. We fall to pieces because of you.
Just 